The Sephardic Jews have long lived on the Iberian Peninsula and later scattered all through the Mediterranean, often in hiding, hiding their Jewish heritage and certainly affecting the food and music of the region. We talk about it. It's on tip of the tongue. Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Sarah Aroeste and Susan Barocas. Sarah is a Ladino singer and songwriter. Susan is a Sephardic chef and writer. They have just returned from leading a trip to Greece and Turkey. Welcome to Tip of the Tongue. Thanks for Thank having you. us. Thanks. So are you are you still suffering from jet lag or are you sort of over it? <laughs> There's kind of no time for jet lag. We came home and then we turned around and went and did a festival this weekend in New York, the Greek Jewish festival. So we just keep going. <laughs> right, right. Well, I mean, sometimes that's the best way. Just push through it and pretend it's not there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So because I'm from New Orleans and I I grew up here and have just historically many of the wealthy Jews who left monuments of one sort or another, like the New Orleans Museum of Art was the Isaac Delgado Museum left by Isaac Delgado. And so there were many Sephardic Jews here in New Orleans who made significant contributions to the city. And um, so I have a a serious awareness of that, but also knowing that just in the general sort of population, not as much is known about Sephardic Jews, who they are, why they're called Sephardic Jews, all of that sort of thing. So why don't we start by talking about that? Who wants to go first? Go ahead, Sarah. I'll start. So the word Sephirad actually comes from the Hebrew word for Spain, which is Sephirad. So in modern parlance, Sephardic really refers to those Jews who came from the Iberian Peninsula prior to 1492. So Jews had been living in the area for centuries and had been, you know, fully integrated into society. And then, you know, fast forward when the Inquisition started and the Edict of Expulsion and, um, you know, a lot of stuff started happening in the 1400s and even earlier. And, you know, a lot of people think the Inquisition was just one thing, but it actually lasted for hundreds of, of years and had great impact socially, culturally, geographically. But today, so the word Sephardic refers to that community that was expelled from Spain in 1492 and really developed their own cultural identity across centuries and borders. Most of the migration of Jews went towards the Ottoman Empire, which was North Africa and along the Mediterranean and towards towards what is today modern Turkey, but the Ottoman Empire was a huge swath and Jews really spread out um, all over. And so depending on where a Jewish community ended up, we have unique um, cultural properties depending on where 
um, one Sephardic community settled over another. So for example, my grandfather and Susan's grandmother um, is from a tiny little town that was known as Monastir. Today, it is known as Bitola in North Macedonia. And our pronunciations and some of our traditions would be slightly different than a Sephardic community that ended up in, let's say, Rhodes or in Salonika, Greece. But there are some unifying forces that um, really connect Sephardic Jews all over the world. And two of our favorite ones are food and music. And I'll let Susan take it from there. Right. It's kind of amazing that these touchstones even in different communities with different influences, there are things, there are common threads that run throughout. When you look, for instance, I'll let Sarah address the music. When you look at the cuisine, um, there are foods that identified the Jews of Spain when they were in Spain. And these are foods that actually the Inquisition decree mentions more about food related to ferreting out who's Jewish or who's a secret Jew than it does to religious practice. That's how identifiable the cuisine was. And then there are these certain foods which appear on the album in the form of songs that are things like eggplant, garlic, onion, certain dishes, the way they're prepared, slow cooking, overnight cooking, because that would be for Shabbat the next day. These things identified the Jews of Spain and they're what the women carried with them forward into their new homelands. Taking on, for instance, you have domas, you have stuffed grape leaves and stuffed vegetables. And they're different slightly in things like Greek influenced cuisines versus Turkish influenced cuisines. Mm-hmm. But they're still the same essential food. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's very interesting to see that over culture over centuries, over miles and miles and miles, there are still links to that past and there are still commonalities among Sephardic Jews. Well, so as the, after 4092, as there was a diaspora, weren't there also already Jews in a lot of these places? I mean, it's not just Jews that came from Spain. What about the Jews who were there already? Do they get sort of wrapped into being called Sephardic? just because they're perhaps in a Mediterranean country or something like that? Yeah, it's a great question. One of the largest communities is known as Romaniot. um, And those were Jews who were in the region as early as Roman times. And so um, their communities were sort of subsumed by by the Sephardic Jews who um, came in, you know, full on mass and um, Slowly, some of those smaller pockets of of Jewish communities were sort of taken in by the Sephardic communities, but they do still exist. And there are some unique properties. In fact, we were just in Athens two weeks ago and we were at a Romaniote synagogue and they have some of, you know, they still retain some of their unique properties. And in fact, the chief rabbi of Athens um, is Romaniote himself. So, um, yes, you are absolutely right. There are other communities, but Sephardic Jewry has really become sort of the main Mediterranean Jewish community mm-hmm. that is recognized today. Yeah, it's kind of a, I think it's a real challenge to maintain the diversity of Judaism and Jewish culture because everything that's not Ashkenazic tends to be called Sephardic, and that is absolutely not the case. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, it's it's Romaniote, but it's also 
very thriving communities like Mizrahi, you know, the Persian, Iraqi, Yemenite, Syrian, that never went to Spain. That existed for thousands of years in those places. Or North African, we refer to very often North African, like Moroccan Jews, as Sephardic. Well, some are. There's a lot of movement back and forth between the Iberian Peninsula and North Africa, but many are not. And those are really Maghrebi Jews. Those are Jews that were in the Maghreb, Northern Africa for a very long time. So we that's part of what we're doing is saying, Jews are very diverse. Um, we have this wonderful Sephardic culture and history that we wanna focus on. And we also want to highlight that there are lots of different Jews and lots of different traditions. And I'll just say that Susan mentioned earlier an album, and just in case your listeners aren't familiar, we do have an album that links uh, music traditions with Sephardic um, food items. And one of the things that we're trying to show in this album, which is called Savor, which is the Sephardic word, the Judeo-Spanish, which is our language of Sephardic Jews. Um, Savor means flavor or taste. And one of the things that we've shown is that the food, even though we're calling it Sephardic, we have food customs from all over the the sort of Sephardic diaspora. So we have, you know, recipes that are inspired by Egypt, by Morocco, by Syria, by Iraq, and it, likewise with the music. So some of the musical patterns are influenced by a Moroccan melody or a Greek melody or a Turkish one. So we're trying to show that with the music and with the food, there are so many influences that have made up this wider Sephardic culture and how they're connected. So you just kind of made a reference to Ladino. So how broadly spoken is it still today? Ooh. Interesting <laughs> question. Yeah. yeah. Sarah, yeah I mean, it's, so. on, it's on the rise in some ways, but Sarah, you're the Ladino singer expert. Why don't you? Um, well, I will say that UNESCO has listed it as a severely dangerous language, and it is a sad truth that no one will be born again speaking Ladino as a first language. So post-World War II, no one is born speaking it as a first language, which is different than, let's say, um, you know, a language that a lot of people compare it to, which is Yiddish. There are still people growing up speaking Yiddish as a first language. That will never be the case in all likelihood with Ladino. However, that doesn't mean that it's still not spoken. In fact, there are pockets across the world that communities are still speaking Ladino. And, you know, I have to say as awful and tragic and, um, you know, life-changing as COVID was for so many and still continues to be in many ways, it was also a boon for for Ladino because it was a way that it connected Ladino speakers from all over the world in ways that we never were able to do before. So virtual gatherings among Ladino speakers was explosive (laughs) during the pandemic. There were so many free offerings and resources so that people could actually learn the language in all this new free time that they had at the start of the pandemic. And we saw such incredible increases not only in interest but in course offerings in writings in workbooks um 
So we actually, as Susan just alluded to, we have a whole new interest in Ladino and it really is on the rise. There are now shared positions that I think at least five universities in America teaching Ladino now. I mean, it really is becoming um, um, much more noticeable and um, there are, you know, a lot of new speakers who are coming, uh, coming into the fold, which is exciting. That really is exciting. Well, of course, in New Orleans, food and music go together without, <laughs> even, you know, it's so seamless that we don't even talk about it. We just assume it. So I, I, I have no difficulty understanding the connection between food and music as you're, as you're discussing it. Um, just it's different, but it's the same, you know. And so uh, I I do want to say that it's very exciting, though, to see you sort of take it on the road. I kind of like that together. And uh, it's it's something that I think is a way to make people see the other side of things. If some people are really into music and then they get to eat the food that the music is about or that's that that birthed the music so to speak then um you know it it makes it a, a bigger and a deeper experience all the way around well the word experience is in the name of our project in the subtitle that's because what we want to do is create those experiences whether it's an in-person program at a synagogue or a university or even a church we by the way, we do hope that we will expand this. Our goal is to expand this um, way of learning about and experiencing Sephardic culture and history beyond just the Sephardic community, beyond just the Jewish community, and into other communities so that this becomes part of the fabric of what people think about when they think about Jews. Um, and so... We also created the trap, the trip we just went on. That's another experience, and we're planning more trips. We already are in process of planning those, and um, other like experiences. We're looking at putting together a cookbook that would incorporate stories and recipes and beautiful photographs. We're looking at doing a documentary film that would incorporate the cooking and the music. We also would like to create. Um, and we are actually talking with someone about creating a multimedia program that would incorporate the music and the food and video and cooking is just a whole package of ways of becoming very multisensory. We want to involve all the senses of a person well, so that they really take it in. I've... I've been having fantasies of getting in touch with the uh, Museum of the Southern Jewish Experience here in New Orleans and the Southern Food and Beverage Museum co-sponsoring some kind of mm. event because we they don't have a kitchen, you know, at at their museum, but we have the kitchen. So we would, you know, be able to do something that could that would be jointly, you know, jointly put together. I think that could be a lot of fun. Love we that idea. Programs. Yeah, that would be great. We tailor programs to all kinds of situations. Kitchens, no kitchens, caterers who cook some recipes that we provide, you know, 
there's all kinds of ways of working it out and that would be fantastic. Sarah and I would be there in a flash. <laughs> <laughs> because we really believe that you know, understanding and experiencing culture cannot be a passive experience right. that people have to you know, do it for themselves. They have to dig their hands into the food. They have to actually be singing. So a lot of our, the music component is not performative. It's actually, um, you know, sing along because we, we want, like Susan said, to appeal to all the senses, but it, we don't want it to be, you know, frontal. We want the audience to be totally participatory in it so that you can engage in a culture fully, you know, Sephardic culture, like so many cultures, um, is just, filled with so much texture and it's so dynamic and it's constantly moving and there's so many different tastes and modalities and um you can't access it just through you know one beautiful concert or just you know one delicious meal by combining all, all of these things you get a much more in-depth interaction with a culture at least that's what our belief is and also lasting i think that's the other thing is when you do that you end up with something more lasting in your life so to prepare for this talk, besides listening to things and watching you all, I also have been reading, like, there's this wonderful book called The Classic Cuisine of Italian Jews that uh, is a wonderful book. And I've been reading about Greek Jews and the food and culture. And one of the things that you mentioned, Susan, when you, we first started talking was the eggplant. And oh. so there are all kinds of eggplant stories in the book, The Classic Cuisine of Italian Jews. So I want you to tell an eggplant story because it seems that the eggplant is really important. Ah, uh, an eggplant story. Well, it doesn't there have to be story, what oh. you meant when you talked about the oh. eggplant. Yeah. You know, there's a wonderful book um, about the Converso, the secret Jewish Jews. Mm -hmm. And it is, yeah, it's called A Drizzle of Honey uh -huh. by uh, David Gitlitz and Susan K. Davidson, Linda K. Davidson. What is um, special about that is this is a book that researched from primary sources like Inquisition testimony that went into the 16th century. I mean, the Inquisition went on and on. So there people... was an Inquisition representative in New Orleans. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we when were we were a French colony. You know, we were a French colony, and then in the 18th century, we also then France ceded New Orleans to Spain, and we, you know, we we were continuing in the 18th century the uh, Inquisition here in New Orleans. Right. And that is so true in many parts of the world. First Jews who came to the United States were the 23 from Recife, Brazil, when Portugal took over in 1654. They ended up in New Amsterdam. They had to leave. So what I was going to say about this book, A Drizzle of Honey, that's so interesting. There's a wonderful eggplant recipe in there for a stuffed eggplant by a woman who was tried by the Inquisition um, for being for Judaizing because she was a secret Jew, but she was cooking still the foods of uh, being Jewish, and mm -hmm. even though she was outwardly Christian. And this is such an interesting recipe, because it also incorporates, it's savory, and it has a lot of spices, and it has fruits in it. And that is such a hallmark of, those, those are hallmarks of Sephardic cuisine, this very flavorful, 
using fruits and savory dishes, using sweet and sour. These are hallmarks and <clears throat> they were tells to the Inquisition. Mm -hmm. And you also had the eggplant was is an interesting story anyway in Europe. Where did it come from? You know, you have Imam Bialde in, in Turkey, you have the, the Sultan's eggplant, essentially, that is a dish that was so beloved by the Sultan who first received it, who first it was cooked for, that it became a classic Turkish dish. Jews brought the eggplant when they came from the east, from the west to the east, across, and it was coming also on ships from places like Persia and South Asia to the Ottoman Empire, because the Ottomans were foodies and the so the Sephardic and the Ottoman cuisine got together on things like the eggplant and created all these wonderful dishes and cross-created. Hmm. They seeded each other's dishes, so to speak. Uh -huh. And the eggplant's one of those. And from the musical side, uh -huh. I would just add that on our album project, Savor, the eggplant is the only food out item out of 10 foods that we curated in song. The album is set up as a menu with appetizers called mezes and then the plato principal, which are the main dish, main dishes, and then dulce, the desserts. We have 10 dishes and the eggplant is the only one that has two <laughs> in the menu um, because it's so iconic that it has both an appetizer and a main dish. And um, the appetizer dish is um, a song that is the title of the song is Siete Modos de Guisar la Berenjena, which literally means seven ways to prepare an eggplant. <laughs> and it comes from a larger song that had over 30 ways to prepare an eggplant. But we, we whittled it down. The, the version with seven verses has become the more known version because it gets pretty long. But that's how important the, the eggplant was in, you know, in Sephardic cooking and cuisine as it developed that, you know, eggplant was used for everything. And so we needed to include it twice. Yeah. And as you may know, the eggplant was not being eaten by like the Christians of Europe. Mm -hmm. at all and in fact they were there's like derogatory poetry about the Jews in Spain eating eggplants and it there are no Jewish cookbooks from that time but there are <clears throat> three cookbooks in particular two written in Arabic and one in Catalan and they were written by uh the Muslim community and um, there are six or seven, I can't remember, I think there's a total of 13 recipes in between the three books. And several of them are for eggplant also. Mm -hmm. That's how I call And they're called Jewish eggplant. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Eggplant of the Jews. Fried eggplant a la Judea, you know? <laughs> yes, yes. And that's what, that's basically what um, the, the author of this uh, Italian book talks about. And that that they were just so good that then they became adopted by all of Italy, basically. Because um, no one was dying from eating them, which initially, everyone you know, was worried about. Yeah, like yeah. the tomato, it's like no, it's going to kill us. Yeah, that nightshade. Yeah, that nightshade. Well, except 
except for one of the songs on our album about eggplant, which is called El Dio La Mate Esta Grega, actually accuses the Jews of burning the eggplant, which is what caused the great fire of Salonica in 1916 that ravaged the city. So, uh, so some people did accuse the poor, the poor Jewish eggplant for, for ruining the city, but uh, in all other ways, <laughs> it was a beloved food. Still is. <laughs> Right, right. Oh, goodness. Well, all right. I'm, I'm really, um, I'm really curious. What is your absolute favorite song? And what is your absolute favorite dish? Or is it is it depending on your mood? Favorite child? I, you know, I can't do that. Can't do it. Okay. <laughs> I have to think, Sarah, do you, can you say? I mean, I, I probably do not because it's my favorite song or favorite food, but because I think the combination is so is so lovely, um, especially in the Savor project. One thing we haven't touched upon yet is the intergenerational aspect of Sephardic cuisine and song um, in that you know, all of these songs were sung communally. So um, families and especially, you know, as women led them, were singing these songs together around um you know, dining tables or in the kitchen. Um, and so all different ages would be singing these songs and different generations of women um, would be passing along these food traditions. And so we've tried to incorporate that in one pairing in particular, I think is just so, so beautiful on the Savor project. We have the iconic Bureka, um, which is prepared by a mother-daughter called Bendichas Manos and um, the mother is 96 years old as she demonstrates how to make the bareka in a beautiful video demonstration. All of the recipes are are videoed in demonstrations by each of the 10 chefs and so on the video you see this mother-daughter team um, of Kay Israel and Marsha Weingarten. And Kay, the mother, is 96 years old, and you watch her incredible hands crimping the edges of the bareka. And the song that accompanies it is a song by the great Flori Jagoda, one of the great masters of Ladino and Sephardic music, who passed away last year, again, in her 90s. Um, and the song is literally about making a bareka in the kitchen with a child. And with um, that sort of image of how, on the one hand, it's so fun to cook with children. On the other hand, it's so messy. <laughs> and so this song talks about, you know, rolling out the dough and the flour going everywhere and the butter and all this. Um, and on the album, I sing it with my six-year-old daughter. Oh. So you hear this, you know, young voice, my six-year-old and my eight-year-old. Um, and you hear these, you know, lovely little little sweet voices with a 90 year difference accompanying the woman who's actually making it in the video. So I just think that is a beautiful representation of the combination of, of music and food and how in Sephardic culture, you know, all of this is supposed to be done with joy in a family, the music, the food, all of it is just, it's so joyful as it's been passed down. Right. Wow. Okay, so I'm going to tell you a story about myself. And then after that, we're going to talk about like your website and all that. So my grandmother's maiden name was Lecce, L-E-C-C-E. -E, and she came 
from Sicily, there were almost 100,000 Sicilians that came to New Orleans at the turn of the 20th century. And she was she came with that group. And her parents actually came also. She was, the, my grandmother was the eldest of the family. There were 11 children eventually. Some were already in being, you know, my grandmother was 18 when she came with her parents and several sisters and brothers. And then more sisters and brothers were born in the U.S. Um, and, but the, the, the name was Leche. So two things happened both kind of saying the same thing. One was my mother, whose last name was Bayamonte, because my grandfather, also Sicilian, but not from Lecce, not Lecce. She, my, my mother went to Sicily and hired one of those people who kind of looks up your relatives kind of thing. And um, the person asked her, are you from the Jewish Leches or the Catholic Leches? And so my mother, of course, didn't know anything about the Jewish leches because she had grown up Catholic. And so she she just said, well, I really don't know. And the person who whom she hired, the genealogist, said, you know, they came, the leches came during a, pro, a pogrom and they came to Palermo and from some place in southern Italy, in the boot, you know, not not in Sicily, and uh, and that they came, and then everyone was named Lecce, so and so di Lecce, so and so di Lecce. Everybody wound up with the last name Lecce, and okay, so that was the first inkling that historically generations and generations back. So this was like the seventeenth century, I believe, when this happened. So it was a long time ago and there was time for people to intermarry and all the sorts of things that happened that changed people's religion. So that was just, okay, we learned this. Then on Facebook of all places, somebody who lived in Leche became my Facebook friend. I can't even remember why, but it had nothing to do with this, but that's just what happened. And so I wrote to him and I said, oh, my grandmother's maiden name was Leche. And the first thing he writes back to me, are you Jewish? And I said, well, that's really interesting because <laughs> I told the other story about my mother going there. Oh, and and yeah. um, But then I had my DNA done. And the DNA that you would find that identifies you as Jewish is often based on Ashkenazi DNA. And they, there doesn't seem to be a like data bank of, of Sephardic DNA. So I, I couldn't confirm it or not with my DNA. So, but I thought that was interesting. I thought it was very interesting and, uh, um, you know, just rich gene pool. <laughs> and, <laughs> so many stories, really, like with the Spanish Jews, we have, one woman, Jeannie Milgram, who was born in Cuba, now lives in Florida. She's descended, she has discovered, she was brought up Catholic, who, and she's discovered that her ancestors, generations ago, were conversos, secret Jews. Uh -huh. And she has embraced now very much that heritage. Uh -huh. And she's helping other people find that heritage too. And the dish she contributes is ropa vieja, 
uh-huh. which is the like one of the classic Cuban dishes. Right. Started with the Jews of Spain. Oh. It came from the Jews of Spain. Isn't that went- interesting? Yeah. And so, well, actually, one of the things that we point out a lot with the food in this is that Sephardic food uh-huh. has influenced food around the world greatly. But that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so so your story is not so many people are starting to discover different roots mm-hmm. than they thought they had. And many of those are Jewish. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay, so tell us how we can find you. Tell us about your project, your website, all of that. And maybe where are you going to be having another experience soon? Oh, so we um, have a website. It's SavorExperience.com. And uh, it actually is part of Sarah's wonderful website. And it's built into that. And um, if you go to SavoirExperience.com, you can sign up for our newsletter, for example. And what's great about getting news from us is we do not inundate you, but we do send you announcements when we will be places, when we will be doing things, whether it's a trip or an appearance. or um, We still do also virtual programs by Zoom. Hmm? We What's my next one? I think that... We're working on a number of them, and I think the next one that's actually signed, sealed, and delivered is October in Western Connecticut. That's true. In Newtown. Um, but people can see us. I mean, it's really seeing you, but I'll, I'll make a, maybe a, a little cameo in the in Western Massachusetts in August. Right. Yeah, I'm doing a cooking thing, and I'm so excited. Sarah lives near there. Mm-hmm. I'm doing a Sephardic Rosh Hashanah Seder class mm-hmm. on August 18th. And Sarah lives nearby. So Sarah, please come and sing with us too. That would be so <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> and people would love it. A little bonus. That that sounds great. Well, I could talk to you all forever. I just think this is a fascinating subject. And I love just the uncovering and making things more known. And especially when it has to do with food and music together. I mean, that's just so perfect. And so I want to thank both of you for being with us today on Tip of the Tongue. And everybody can remember Savor and what experience. is SavorExperience.com. SavorExperience.com. And then people can sign up for the newsletter. And that sounds like the perfect way to learn what you're up to. So thanks so much. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue, part of the Nitty Grits Network of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. Learn more and subscribe to this and other podcasts at southernfood.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. Find us on Facebook on Nitty Grits Podcasts. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.